You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. And as you turn there, I want you to know that I have been praying for you this week as I've worked my way through this passage. Um, This is one of the more challenging passages in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I think as we read our way through it, you're going to see why. And then as we work our way through it, section by section, you'll experience with me, I think, some of the particular challenges that come with thinking through how in the world we apply this passage to our own lives and in our own context today. So if you've got a copy of God's Word in front of you, uh, I invite you to follow along with me as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Father, I pray today that the simple reading and hearing of your word would fall upon hearts eager to receive it and to respond to it accordingly. Lord, this is a difficult passage. And I'm sure 
that questions are going to arise in people's minds as they have in my own mind this week as I worked my way through it. Father, I pray simply for wisdom. Wisdom to know how to connect the dots between this text and our everyday lives, between this text written some 2,000 years ago and our own church family in the 21st century. And God, I pray for humility. Or at least twice in this passage, Paul calls out the Corinthian church for their arrogance. Father, help us not to be arrogant. Help us not to think that we know better than you how this thing called church is supposed to go. Help us instead to submit to you and to your wisdom, even though it may be hard to hear. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's been a lot of talk over the last few weeks about infectious diseases. And really, as as a backdrop, uh, that entire conversation that, of course, is ongoing, helps us better picture the power of a surrounding culture and its values to actually infect a church if the sins of that culture are transmitted into and find a host home, so to speak, in the body of Christ. Thus, Paul's explicit instructions to the Corinthian church in this challenging passage to put distance between themselves and a particular person who was unashamedly committing a particularly horrible sin. And to do that both for their good as a church and as Paul writes, for this particular individual's good as well. Now we're going to walk through this passage in four stages this morning. And as we work our way through it, I invite you to think along with me about what the implications are of this passage in our own day and time. First in verses one and two, Paul introduces the problem. Now remember I said at the beginning of this series that 1 Corinthians is basically a responsive letter that deals with several problems in the Corinthian church that were brought to Paul's attention. This is the second specific problem that he's going to address. In fact, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. The way that it's written indicates that this is not hearsay, that this is fact, that it is known to be true that there is sexual immorality in the Corinthian congregation. Now that term, sexual immorality, is a blanket term. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to deal more specifically with uh, the implications for our Christian lives of that. But let me just say this at the moment. Sexual immorality biblically covers all manner of sexual activity outside of the one man, one woman covenant commitment of marriage. And the assumption that Paul is making right out of the gate is that sexual immorality, whatever kind or type or shape, should not be present 
within the congregation of God's people. Such behavior among Christians, in other words, is not in line with the gospel, even if it was and still is in line with the culture. And make no mistake about it. It was just as in line with the culture then as it seems to be today. Now, in Roman society, sexual immorality, or at least certain forms of it, were widely accepted and widely practiced. And Corinth in particular had a historic reputation for being something of this cosmopolitan hotbed of sexual immorality. And so as sin often does, the culture's values and vices had made their way into the Corinthian church. But it gets worse, okay? Paul goes on to say that this sexual immorality that's present among you is of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. The Corinthian church was, in other words, accepting a kind, a type, a form of sexual immorality that wasn't even acceptable in sexually promiscuous Corinth. A man was sleeping with his father's wife, most likely his stepmother. Now, Roman law considered this to be a doubly despicable crime that would have been punishable by, get this, exile from the community, a complete loss of Roman citizenship, and a loss of property for both the man and the woman. And so what Paul is saying is that this particular sin is not only worse than what the pagans themselves would tolerate, in fact, the way that you're dealing with it is more lenient than the pagans themselves would deal with it. Now, we don't actually know why the church was particularly okay with this man's behavior. It may have been that he was wealthy, and that he was in some way, shape, or form providing for the needs of the church. And in turn, the church was kind of looking the other way, even as their reputation as the people of God was slowly sliding into the gutter. It may have been that he was a well-known, influential individual, a person that the believers there enjoyed having on their team because guess what? It made them feel important. So rather than call the man to account for his actions, they actually gave him a pass instead. It may have been that they considered themselves above sin. Perhaps they believed that their newfound Christian faith had kind of set them free. In other words, and through their Christian faith, they had come into a free spirituality or a a higher plane of existence where what you did with your body or what someone else did with their body didn't really matter much in the end. God is, after all, concerned ultimately with the spiritual and not with the physical, right? Paul actually addresses this attitude in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as we'll see down the road. Regardless of the specific reason, Paul points out that the attitude of the church regarding the man's behavior is not 
what it should be. Notice what he writes. Verse 2, And you are arrogant. Ought you not to mourn? Now the irony here, as we've already seen in chapters 1 through 4, is that the church was divided over which particular preacher was the best spoken and the most persuasive. But here for the first time in the book, the entire church is united in the acceptance of a man who's practicing ongoing, habitual, blatant sin. And they're proud of it. Arrogant about it. And Paul says instead that they should be mourning the fact that such sin is present in their midst. Instead of dealing decisively with his unrepentant actions, they're actually continuing to receive him as if he's doing nothing wrong. And as we're going to see, this turning a blind eye to such blatant sin harms the church and it actually harms the individual as well. Now, Like I said earlier, you might be saying, whoa, Mike, did you read that next sentence? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Isn't the church supposed to be a place where sinners are welcome? When it comes right down to it, isn't every single person in a local congregation a sinner in some way, shape, or form? What are we going to do then? Just call the whole thing off and send everybody on their way? What, what gives a group of sinners the right to judge another sinner anyway? But here's what you need to understand. You see, we're not talking here about a person who's struggling against a particular sin, who may take two steps forward and three steps back, one step forward and four steps back. No, we're talking about an individual, according to Paul, who is actively engaged in pretty blatant, despicable, sinful behavior that's being condoned or blessed by the church. And it's not just any kind of sinful behavior. We're talking about the kind of sinful behavior that's having a very public effect on the reputation of the church as a holy people, a people belonging to Jesus Christ, a people who are not to be known for such things. More than that, we're we're talking about the kind of sinful behavior that has so twisted the thinking of the church that it no longer sees the sinner's sin as a reason to mourn, but instead as a reason to rejoice and to give celebration and approval to. And we have to remember here that it's not the individual in sin that Paul's addressing, it's the what? The church. It's the church that Paul's talking to and reprimanding regarding their handling or non-handling of this situation. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this morning that we too, because we live in the kind of culture that we do, which is in so many ways similar 
to the culture of Corinth at the time, we are in danger of celebrating rather than mourning the sin among us. Whether it's the sin in our own personal lives or within our church, we're in danger of doing that when we take our cues from the culture around us rather than taking our cues from the Word of God. Think of how much what the Bible calls sexual immorality is actually condoned and even celebrated in some corners of the church today. In other corners, it may not be celebrated, but you know what we do? Eh. We just shrug our shoulders as if things like unmarried couples living together or teenagers engaging in sexual activity, or men and women claiming to follow Christ while engaging in homosexual activity were all acceptable practices among the people of God. Because after all, they are all of them, each and every one, pretty well acceptable in our culture. Brothers and sisters, where is the mourning? And that, not just in regard to the sexual immorality itself, but in our willful, shoulder-shrugging acceptance of it. You want to talk about drinking the cultural Kool-Aid? We've done it. After Paul introduces the problem, he immediately moves to the solution in verse 3 and through verse 5. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now I want you to notice first of all in these verses that Paul is giving the church in Corinth a living, breathing example that they can follow, right? He's taking the spiritual lead so that they can then imitate him, which is exactly what we talked about last week. It's what Paul invited the Corinthian church to do toward the end of chapter four. And so Paul essentially says, look, you're not handling this in a way that honors the Lord. Let me show you how to do that. And he proceeds in these three verses to twice remind the Corinthian church of their identity as a people belonging to the Lord Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you with the power of the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul's reminding the church in Corinth that they have no right to make up this thing called church as they go according to their own arrogant whims or according to the values of the culture that they live in. And this is a bold reminder. As we mentioned earlier, that, that when the church gathers, 
We, we don't do so in order to conduct our own business according to the rules that we determine best or according to those that the culture we live in determines our best. The church answers to one king, one authority, one head, the Lord Jesus. You see, in their arrogance, the Corinthian church had apparently forgotten this. And so Paul tells them exactly how the man involved with his stepmother should be dealt with under the kingship of Jesus for their good and for his. What does he say? Verse five, you are to deliver or to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that is a particularly difficult verse to both interpret and then to apply. But I want to give you the gist of it, okay? As a church, Paul is telling them to remove the man from membership and to essentially hand him out to Satan so that like Peter, he might be sifted. So that he might come to his senses and repent. The hope is that ultimately he will see once he's outside the protective confines of the family of God, once he sees that the entire church family has judged his behavior to be sinful, that it really is sinful and eternally harmful and that he'll turn from his wicked ways and experience afresh the forgiveness of the Lord. Now, you and I need to see a couple of things here, okay? First, we need to see that what Paul prescribes here pictures a church acting in humility and not arrogance. Acting in response to their identity as a people who belong to the Lord Jesus and are responsible to him, whose values, again, aren't being dictated and shaped by the surrounding culture. You see, our knee-jerk response as individualistic Westerners is to call Paul's recommendation arrogant, to call into question the rightness of any person or any group of people to pronounce judgment on another person or group of people. We automatically consider that suspect because of the cultural waters that we are swimming in. But Paul says, in this case, to do anything else would be to respond in arrogance because the Lord Jesus and his word clearly forbid the blatant kind of sexual immorality that's going on and being celebrated in Corinth. In other words, to call it Anything but sexual or immorality or more generally sin would be to set the word of God aside and to make it up as we go. Do you see how that's arrogant? 
Do you see how the opposite of that would be to submit ourselves to the scriptures and to call sin what God calls sin and then to live out the implications of that? Second, you and I need to see that what Paul prescribes here is intended to rescue the unrepentant individual. The instructions he gives not only imply that, he says it straight out. He says, you're to deliver the man to Satan. You're to cast him out of the church for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, so that these sins that are holding him captive will be done away with and his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is important. That's the coming day of judgment. What we're seeing here, in other words, is the actual outworking of love. A love that no doubt looks very different from the way that we often conceive of love. Often our notions of love involve simply supporting someone in their life choices or affirming them in the decisions that they make. Rarely do we talk about tough love. But if you've ever loved a person addicted to something, you know that sometimes tough love means saying what? No. No, I'm not going to give you any more money. No. I'll no longer condone what you're doing. No, you can't come back here. No, you can't stay here. No, you have to leave. Sometimes that kind of thing has to happen in a local church too. You see, if an individual claims to be a Christian, but is relentlessly defending despicable sinful behavior, And we'll do that even if the entire church tries to convince him or her otherwise. Then the only thing left to do, according to Paul, is to dismiss the person through tears. In the genuine hope that by being dismissed, They will actually come to their senses that their self-deception will fall away and they will wake up and they will finally see that they are lost. The question is, do we care enough about someone's spiritual condition to tell them you can't stay here when they continue to live unashamedly like a person who does not know Jesus. Now Paul undergirds these instructions with reasoning in verses 6 through 8. And like he so often does in his letters, he takes a page right out of the Old Testament to illustrate his point. He says for the second time in this chapter, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, you got to kind of drill down with me here a little bit so that we can get our arms around this illustration and apply it back to Paul's instructions. Leaven was a portion of dough that one would keep and store. In storage, it would ferment and the yeast from the air would cause it to rise. Some of you ladies out there probably have sourdough bread starters. And that's exactly what happens. That dough is exposed to the air and over time it ferments and gathers yeast from the air. One could then take that fermented portion of dough and add it to bread ingredients and the entire piece of dough would then have yeast throughout it and would rise and would then be ready for baking. However, in that day and time, the piece of dough in storage could easily get dirty It could easily become infested with other things that you would not necessarily want to eat. And so it would have to be thrown out and a new dough starter begun. Well, once a year, whether they needed to or not, Jewish families would throw out all the leaven in their homes in preparation for the celebration of Passover. Remember in the book of Exodus, the Passover is that time of year when the children of Israel did not put yeast into their bread because they didn't have time for it to rise. Instead, they had to quickly gather their things for their escape from slavery in Egypt. What Paul is doing is he's likening that yearly cleansing of yeast at the celebration of Passover to what it now means to be a Passover people as Christians. He says, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has already been sacrificed. Again, another direct reference back to the original Passover. And notice what he says. That because of Jesus' sacrifice, you and, our, you and I are now a holy people. In fact, we are unleavened bread. Paul says in verse 8, Therefore then, let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven that's to be thrown out because it's diseased, it's infected, it's been corrupted. Instead, we're to celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, we are a holy people of God, now free from death and free from slavery, not slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to sin. Therefore, Paul says, we should celebrate as a people by casting the sin out of our lives and out of our midst. Instead, what does he say? Rather than malice and evil, we should celebrate the festival in sincerity and truth. Sincerity means purity of motive and action. Not one or the other, not purity of motive divorced from purity of action or purity of action divorced divorced from right motive. No, he's talking about sincerity through and through. That we should be a people a gospel people from the inside out. We should also be a people of truth. 
Did you know that at the heart of all sinful behavior is a lie? At the heart of all sinful behavior is an empty promise. That whatever it is this sin promises to provide me will be better than what God himself has promised to give me. You see, ultimately, Paul was warning the Corinthians that if the detestable behavior of the man in sin was allowed to continue, it would end up affecting not only him, but them as well. It's why he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, you and I, if we've ever made any bread, we know that that's true. All it takes is a little bit and the entire lump will be leavened. In fact, the sinful behavior of the man sleeping with his stepmother had already affected this church. You see, they were pretending for whatever reason that what he was doing with his stepmother was in fact not sin. But as Paul goes on to remind them, you already are unleavened bread in Christ Jesus. Because of his, and only because of his death for you, you've been cleansed and set free. Now, the call is to live like it. Which is exactly what Paul said way back at the beginning of this letter in his introduction. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Saints already in Jesus Christ who are now called to live out that identity in our everyday lives. That's what we are. Free people who now belong to God, and are called to live like we belong to God. Not by indulging remaining sinful desires, but by rejecting the lies and the empty promises of sin and the idols that so often give sin its shine and its appeal and instead giving ourselves completely to God. I wonder how many of us struggle with particular sins as a direct result of our failure to realize just who we are in Christ. That we are in fact forgiven, that we are in fact free from slavery to sin, that we are in fact free to live according to God's design. Look, I'm not saying that this connecting of the dots always comes easily. It certainly didn't for the Corinthian church. And it didn't for the children of Israel who originally experienced Passover. It took God one night to free the children of Israel from Egyptian slavery. It took God 40 years to get the Egyptian slave out of them. Do you see the difference? One night to free them from slavery, 40 years to get the slave out of them. This is a long road toward actual everyday holiness. 
Often I think that we allow sin to continue in our lives and in our churches because we don't know who we are and we don't know whose we are. And the answer according to Paul is to be reminded regularly that we are the free and holy people of God who have been called into life-changing relationship with him through our Lord Jesus Christ to a different way of life. A lot of us understand what it means as Americans to live under the rule of law, to live under the constitution that established our great nation. But do we as believers in Jesus Christ understand that this is our divine constitution? That this is the book that governs not only how we are to live, but it tells us who we are and then how we are to respond to God's grace as a result. God's calling us to a different way of life as a different people. A people who belong to God who have been made whole and holy in Jesus Christ. Well, Paul comes back around in verses 9 through 12 and offers a bit of a a, a clarification on his instructions. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers, idolaters, since really, if you were going to do that, you would have to leave planet Earth. That's what he's saying. And it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, almost. It's common sense, really. But he says, now I'm writing to you, verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Sounds like there was a bit of a misunderstanding in the church at Corinth. And Paul had written, in fact, a letter before this one, which he then clarifies here. A letter that, for some reason, has been lost to history. And Paul intends this letter to be a corrective, restating and uh, re-envisioning his earlier instructions to the church. He, He says that he didn't mean in his earlier letter that the people of the church were to completely remove themselves from associating with lost people, with unbelievers. And that's important for us, okay? It's important for where we're going in this passage because a lot of times we in the church want to turn our gaze out at the world and condemn those who are without Jesus for living the way that people without Jesus live. When what Paul says we should be doing is turning our gaze inward and calling one another to the kind of holiness that people who actually know Jesus should have. He says, in fact, that the church is to have nothing to do with anyone who calls themselves a spiritual family member and yet actively and unashamedly engages in a variety of despicable sins. Now, this is the point in the sermon where I say, look, we're not just talking about sexual immorality here. Paul lumps other things into that category. And he's saying, look, church, if there's someone in your midst who's actively engaging in any of these things, 
And they're doing it unashamedly. And they're doing it in the face of other people coming to them and saying, hey, like, that's not how a follower of Jesus lives. Then you turn them out and you treat them as if they're not part of the family because they're not acting like it. In fact, Paul urges them not to even eat with such a person. Why? Because table fellowship in that day was considered a very public sign of acceptance and connection. Paul goes on to say that the church should do this because it is those inside the church who should judge those inside the church, not those outside the church. Now, okay, I hope you're still following me because here again, Our cultural sensibilities just begin to rise up within us. After all, the most popular Bible verse in our culture today is probably not John 3.16. It's probably Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. But we have to remember that Matthew 7, 1 has a context just like 1 Corinthians 5.12 does. And that context in Matthew indicates that we're not to pass judgment on others with an exacting standard that we refuse to use on whom? Ourselves, right? There, Jesus says, if you and I want to see clearly in the judgments that we make, we have to first deal with our own sin, particularly with the ways that we perhaps struggle with the very same sins for which we want to hold others accountable, but not ourselves. In other words, Jesus's own words don't mean that judging is off limits in the body of Christ. If judging were off limits, think about this. There would be no way for a church to say to anyone, hey, we love you enough to tell you that the way you're living is unacceptable. After all, who's to say what's acceptable and unacceptable? Sound familiar? Instead, the body of Christ, under the lordship of Jesus, And with all humility, and in fact with tears in our eyes, is to pronounce judgment on a person who claims to be a Christian, but who will not listen to numerous appeals to repent in order that that individual may come to his senses before the day of final judgment. Remember what Paul said In verse 5, for you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Think about what Jesus is going to say to certain people on that day who claimed to know him, but who did not live like him. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The present judgment, in other words, of a local church against a member that is involved in ongoing, continual, unrepentant sin is designed to mimic the removal or the purging that that individual will experience at the end of time if they do not repent and turn to Christ. You see that? Again, done rightly and with mourning and in humility. This is intended by the Lord Jesus to be an appeal of love to the individual before it's too late. Friends, listen to me. In the church, we take habitual sin and the refusal to repent of it seriously because we take the judgment of God seriously. It's one thing to be told by a local church, listen to me. It's one thing to be told by a local church because of your refusal to repent, you can't stay here. You have to leave. It's another thing to be told by King Jesus on the day of final judgment. Because of your refusal to repent, you have to leave. You can't stay here. Do we love one another enough to tell one another the truth ahead of that day. To make the tough call through tears when it has to be made because we want the self-deceived person to wake up before it's too late. Or will we simply shrug our shoulders and say it's okay. I pray that we will. I pray that the very love of Christ that cares more about people than that would be characteristic of our church. Let's pray.